1992, the baritone voice of Johnny Cash and the soaring harmonies of the Carter family recorded a song, Were You There When They Crucified My Lord? The song asked the question, were you there when they took him from the cross? Were you there when they laid him in the tomb? Were you there when the stone was rolled away? Uh, If you're familiar with the song, um, the response goes, sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. I think trembling is probably one of the right responses. It would be a trembling thing and experience to see Jesus of Nazareth crucified. But you may well say this morning, the answer, the obvious answer to the question, were you there, is no. You and I weren't there. The event in question was the death of Jesus of Nazareth on a Roman cross some 2,000 years ago. Were you there? No. But were you responsible? Yes. Now, that's an unusual question, were you responsible? After all, how can you be responsible for something that happened 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years before you ever existed? But the passage we have before us this morning does actually see the cause or the reason for Jesus being delivered up to death and says He was delivered up for our trespasses. He was raised for our justification. When it says delivered up, it does mean to be understood as delivered up to death. That is what Good Friday is about. We are considering the death of Jesus on the cross why is it that tens of millions of Christians around the world today are remembering a guy who died on a cross? After all, death happens to all of us. And whilst the death of crucifixion is not commonly practiced today, historically there have been thousands of people who have been crucified that way. So what is so significant that we're gathering here on a Friday morning thinking about this man's death? Maybe some of you are visiting today, and maybe you think along the lines of Gandhi, uh, who said of the cross, his death on the cross was a great example to the world, but that there was anything like a mysterious or miraculous virtue in it, my heart could not accept. Maybe this morning, I want you to see if you can accept the mysterious virtue in the cross as we spend our time and attention on that phrase, delivered up for our trespasses. So let's begin by asking the question, who delivered up Jesus of Nazareth? Now, you can ask that question, and you could maybe answer that question in several ways. Jesus was delivered up to death because Judas, one of his disciples, betrayed him, handed him over. Maybe you could say because the religious leaders handed him over to Pilate, or because Pilate, the the Roman guy, commissioned his death. Maybe you could say he was delivered up because uh, the crowd chose to release Barabbas, the insurrectionist, instead of Jesus of Nazareth. Maybe you could say he was delivered up to death because the the soldiers drove nails into his hands. And whilst the biblical accounts testify to these realities, there is a more fundamental reason why he was delivered up to death. Two, in fact, and the first one we'll look at now. And it's in those words, for our trespasses. Trespasses, what are they? Probably haven't used this word in the last week or so. Trespasses are the bad stuff. 
Trespasses are the things we don't often like to think about. Trespasses are the ways in which we've broken God's law. The phrase delivered up was, is a judicial term referring to when a criminal is committed to his punishment. Punishment due to the breaking of a law. That's what trespasses are. And breaking of the law is serious. I was at a friend's house growing up. Uh, he lived on acreage. And there was a sign um, posted next to their house, um, at, at the neighbor's house, that said, trespassers will be prosecuted. Now, because my reading's not great, I thought it read persecuted. And I grew up in church, and I'd heard about the persecuted church. And it was always the persecuted church with Christians overseas who were getting killed. And so I was quite hesitant to ever enter that yard for fear of being killed. Well, trespassing is crossing a line that isn't yours to cross. It is facing prosecution. It's going beyond the bounds. Trespassing exists because God's law exists, and the laws of God exist because uh, God wants to design the world to live in such a way to lead towards human flourishing. Our good, His glory. So stay within the lines, it works well. Color outside the lines, the picture goes wrong. But what sin does, sin comes along in our hearts and takes God's good commands and says, I'll show you a thousand ways to break that law. I'll bend it, I'll disregard it, and I'll see that line and I'll walk right over it. Transgressions are every evil thought, every evil deed, sin, every unholy action. All this is an offense to a holy God. You you think if you were a citizen in the uh, 13th century England, if you were to stand in front of the king of England and you were to ignore his commands you were to disregard his rule, you were to spit in his face, treat his people with contempt, or even just be indifferent to relating him as your king, you could imagine there would be consequences for those actions. Well, that's the rules. Now, sometimes we don't like the rules of how things are set up. I've been um, playing a couple games of golf in the last six months. Um, When I say a couple, I literally just mean a couple, and there's one particular rule that um, I don't quite like, and it's the rule when, when my ball goes into the water, I have to incur a penalty stroke. An extra stroke comes on my game. Um, and due to my current playing game, it's like a water tour um, for, for me playing golf. And it's funny, every time it happens, there's something in me that just wishes this wasn't the case. I, I want to raise my hand and say, can we, just, can we just try that again? Can we, can we just bring that back? Can everyone here just pretend that that didn't happen again? But that's not the way it works, is it? Something so small as golf, if that's true of that, well, how much more of our lives in which ways are the mistakes and the sins, places we've fallen short of God's glory, the way we've transgressed His law, there are the way things are wired to work, there are rules, there are laws, and when they are broken, there are consequences. Can't he just sweep it under the rug, we might ask? Can't he just overlook the sin and the offense? Oh, he can't. I think we'd all be in agreement that the past several years, seeing certain institutions sweep under sins and offenses against people is not good for anybody. 
Without punishment, the law is not upheld. No one wants to live in a world where there's no consequence of breaking God's laws. God is unwilling to sacrifice His holiness for love and unwilling to sacrifice His love for holiness. He wants to maintain them both, and that's why He's here heading to the cross. That's why He is being delivered up to death. Each of us have transgressions. We've all crossed the line of God's law. We're all found guilty. And there's a gravity this morning that we want to feel as we think through the cross. See, the idea that you've transgressed God's law isn't to simply just remain an idea that sits out here as a truth, but rather it needs to be a lived reality that you experienced in your heart, an acknowledgement in in the soul. And to do that, I think we need to look at our sin and then look at our Savior on the cross. If you look at your sin, I wonder what you would see. If you think through your transgressions, your sins, what might you see? In Western movies, you often see that there'll be wanted posters of criminals. Faces put on the wanted poster, Mad Dog McGee, and then there's like a list of what that criminal has done wrong. Mad Dog McGee, wanted for sheep stealing, murder, and the list goes on. I wonder if this morning we'd taken a photo of you and put you up on a wanted poster, what kind of sins would be on that list? If you're like me, how small would the fine print be? How many posters would it take? And if you think, well, maybe it's not that bad, how would you feel if we put those posters all around this room and we invited everybody to come and take a look? I don't think many of us would last long in this room before running out in shame. We'd feel the gravity of our sin. We'd start to see ourselves, one part of ourselves, for what we really are and what we've really done, sin before a holy God. Now, you think this might be a bit morbid to think this way, but the problem is if we minimize our sin, what we end up doing is minimizing what Jesus is doing on the cross. See, if sin is no big deal, then the cross just becomes another guy dying. But if sin's big enough deal that it requires blood to be sacrificed, payment to be paid, now the cross starts to make more sense. And so you need to look at the cross. Looking at the cross helps calibrate how we should see the offense of our sin, the ways in which we've sinned against God. And it's not pleasant. Good Friday is not meant to be pleasant. It's not meant to be skipping and sunshine. That will come. But in this moment, there's a gravity to feel the cross. Look at our sin. Look at the cross. The cross was brutal. From the cross and crucifixion, you get the word excruciating, painful. Cicero called crucifixion the most cruel and terrifying penalty. The Jewish historian Josephus, he labeled the crucifixion the most pitiful, the most pitiful of deaths. To minimize the cross is to minimize our sin. Listen to this description of that crucifixion by a guy called Maurice. He says, nothing could be more horrible than the sight of this living body 
breathing, seeing, hearing, still able to feel, and yet reduced to the state of a corpse by forced immobility and absolute helplessness. We could never say, we cannot ever say the crucified person writhed in agony, for it was impossible for him to move. Stripped of his clothing, unable to even brush away the flies that fell upon his wounded flesh, already lacerated by the preliminary scouring. Exposed to the insults and curses of the people who always find some sickening pleasure in the sight of the tortures of others. A feeling which is increased and not diminished by the sight of pain. The cross represented miserable humanity, reduced to the last degree of impotence, suffering, and degradation. The penalty of crucifixion combined all the most ardent torment it could desire, torture, the pillory, degradation, and certainly death, distilled slowly, drop by drop. No wonder the prophet Isaiah prophesied about the suffering servant, saying, Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Friends, when you get the cross in view clearly, you begin to see the consequences of your sin clearly. Were you there? No. But are we responsible? Yes. But now notice, who's actually taking responsibility for the punishment of sins? Our sins might be the causation of why he, he's gone to the cross, but who's actually taking the responsibility to deal with the penalty and the punishment of our sins? Well, it's not us. Jesus. Jesus is the one who's bearing the responsibility that our sins deserve. We asked at the beginning, who delivered Jesus up to death? And I said there was two answers, two more prominent answers. The first one was, yes, our sins. But the second one, and the most prominent answer, is that God himself delivered up Jesus to deal with our transgressions. God the Father handed over the Son to atone for the punishment of our sins. This is the entire storyline of the Bible. The storyline of the Bible, besides the beginning and the very end, is just a, a bunch of people messing up, endeavoring to try and live by faith, but continually messing up, continually needing their shame and their sin covered over by a holy God who longs to be in relationship with them. The whole storyline of the Bible is God providing substitutes for His people to cover their shame, to bear the judgment they deserve so that He can have relationship with them. And so Romans 8.32 says, He, that is God, who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? God the Father is giving up the Son. Octavius Winslow aptly said, Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. We see that it was God the Father who delivered His only, His one and only Son to death. For love. For love, His only Son was sacrificed so that you and I would have our sins atoned for. For love, He went willing to the cross. For love, the Father delivered the cup of wrath to His Son, and in love, the Son voluntarily took it. 
the good news of the gospel is coming in that the judgment that ought to land on us doesn't need to land on us because it landed squarely on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. Shoulders of him. We may not know, we cannot tell what pains he had to bear, but we believe it was for us. He hung and suffered there. Do we believe that this morning? That he was delivered up by God for our sins in our place. Each of the sins on our wanted poster laid upon Christ. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Were we there? No. Were we responsible? Yes. Did Jesus take responsibility on our behalf? Yes. Now, you may wonder this morning, is it too good to be true that God would substitute himself in our place to take the punishment that we deserve? Now, if you haven't wrestled with that being too good to be true, you haven't yet wrestled with the cross. Because it surely would seem too good to be true. In fact, sometimes the, one of the kinks that sin has in the human heart is that it doesn't want to make room for someone else to kind of deal with our problem fully. We either want to palm it away or we want to deal with it ourselves. In fact, there's some um, religious beliefs that say, no, 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 someone else can't take the punishment and penalty for you. If, for instance, in the Quran it says, no soul shall bear another's burden. Indeed, if a laden soul cries out for help, not even a near relation shall share its burden. You shall reap what you sow with your deeds. Friends, that is not good news for us here on a Friday morning. The good news of Christianity is that Jesus bears the burden of our sins. 2 Corinthians says, He who knew no sin became sin, that we might have the righteousness of God. How do we have that righteousness of God today? How might we be made right before God, declared right? Well, it's because Jesus bore the punishment and the penalty of our sin. And by believing that God raised him from the dead. And that's where our passage in Romans kind of fits into the broader context. We're made right by belief in God, by taking God at his word. And his word says he rose Jesus from the dead. You see, that story about Abraham that we read before. He was a guy who exercised faith. And because he exercised faith, he was declared righteous before God. And so knowing his story helps us know our story, how we can be made right before God. In Genesis 15, uh, God meets Abraham and he says to Abraham, he says, look towards heaven and, and number the stars if you can count them. And he says, so shall your offspring be. So you're going to have a huge inheritance, Abraham. And what was Abraham's response to this? Abraham responds, says he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. What did he do? He took God at his word. This is before there was any sign of circumcision. This is before there was any given, uh, the law was given. So he's not made right by religious practice. He's not made right by obeying the rules. He's not made right by works. How is he made right? By trusting and taking God at his word. Now, later in life, when Abraham was no sprightly young lad, 
and neither was his wife, who was considered barren. In fact, Romans 4 tells us he's so old in age that his body was as good as dead. <laughs> now, it's probably not the nicest way to describe a person's body. Oh, how old are you? I'm as good as dead. That's where he was at. That's where Sarah was at. So can life come from death? God, you said I'm going to have as many children as they can name in the stars, number in the stars. Sarah and I, we're pressing 100. What's going to happen? Can life come from death? Verse 18, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. He believed in the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now, you may ask, what does this have to do with Good Friday, an old man and many children? Well, we see that it was Abraham's exercising of faith that it was counted to him as righteousness. That is, how is it that Abraham was made right with God? By taking him at his word, not through any action of his own, not through any good intention of his own, but by trusting God. And so our passage, it comes and says, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Friends, the way we are made right with God is the same today as it was thousands of years ago. It is by faith and belief in the true and living God by taking him at his word. And do you know what his word says to us on this Good Friday morning? It says very simply that Jesus died so that you may live. Jesus died that you may live. It says our problem is sin and Jesus is our all-sufficient provider. Faith means believing that you and I were so sinful that Jesus had to die for us but also believing that we are so incredibly loved that Jesus went to die for us willingly. Admitting you need help is difficult, isn't it? Admitting that you need a savior and a rescuer and a kind of righteousness outside of yourself is rather difficult. I recall when I was younger, I have an older brother uh, he was an older brother who was stronger than me and still retains to this day to be stronger than me. And I remember there's a moment where my brother tried to open a jar and he was unable to open it. And he said to Dan, he said to me, he said, uh, not third person, um, <laughs> he said to me, he said, can you open this? Can you please help me open this? And oh man, my big smile across my face. I would love to help you open this jar. What I'm just going to need from you is in this moment, can you just say, I think that you're stronger than me? Now he said, stop being, stop being fooled, just stop being an idiot or something. Just open the jar. I said, hey, I'm, I'm here. I'm willing. I'm ready. By all accounts, you think I'm stronger than you. And so I just need you to say those words. In this moment, I think you're stronger than me. He said, I, that's, I'm not doing that. Just open the jar. I'm just like, I really want to do it. I'm not saying you're stronger, always stronger than me. I'm not saying I'll always be stronger than you. But in this moment, I need you to acknowledge that I'm stronger than you, or at least you think I am. 
And uh, we dug in for a little while, and I think eventually I relented because I'd had my fun. But admitting need is very humbling. Admitting need is very humbling. Now, what's more humbling? Admitting need to open a jar or admitting the need that you need your sins forgiven? That you do not possess the righteousness that you need in order to justify your life before God. Until you and I come to answer the question, who was responsible for Jesus dying, with a deep sense of culpability, it was me, then you may not yet grasp the cross, and you may not yet grasp Christianity. One writer said, you do not understand Christ until you understand His cross. And if we haven't understood this, if we haven't come to the place of receiving by faith what Jesus did on the cross, you'll end up and we'll end up trying to justify our life through every other means. We try and justify your existence by making a name for yourself. We try and justify your life by, by having more, making enough money, or being a good enough parent, or being a good enough friend, or having enough new experiences or simply being religious enough and sincere enough and hoping enough that this is enough that God's going to accept that as an offering before Him. But when we understand the cross, we understand that we confess we are helpless and hopeless and that we need help. And Jesus is eager to lend His help. He'll do all the saving work. He'll atone for every sin, past, present, and future. Have you found yourself in this place this morning, loved ones? Have you so encountered the holiness of God and your need before Him, and so you cling to no other hope, no other plea, but you hold to Christ and Christ alone? Only the man who is prepared to share his, in the guilt of the cross may claim his share in its grace. So come and gaze at the cross this morning. Come and gaze and see how your sin was fully atoned for. Come and see how you no longer have to try and deliver up or make amends to try and atone and justify your life before God. Freely receive. Receive it by faith. Jesus was delivered up so that you and I could be brought to the Father. Jesus was delivered up so that our stain of sin could be wiped clean. Jesus is delivered up so that we could be delivered this morning question we need to consider is, if God gave Jesus over for our sins, have you given your life over to Him? Have you given your life over to Him? Have you trusted Him to deal with your sins? Or are you still stuck in this cycle of trying to atone them for your own? Well, if you believe in the cross and you receive that and you believe it was final, Receive his mercy and grace today. His death on the cross in our place for our sins is what makes that terrible Friday a good Friday. Were you there? No. Were you responsible? Yes. Did he take the responsibility on your behalf? Yes and amen. So that we can be delivered mercy today. Let's pray.